Okay. Hello, friends. Welcome to another exciting Chabura Shiur. Today we have the privilege of having Professor Zvi Zohar with us in the first installment of his three-part series on Sefaradi Teleological Halakha. During this series, we will explore the methodology, the considerations, and the innovation and ingenuity of the halachic framework of the Sefaradi Chachamim by going through three different fascinating halachic cases. About our speaker, Professor Zvi Zohar is one of the leading academic scholars of Sephardi rabbinic creativity in modern times. He studied at Merkaz Harav Yeshiva for three years, received his PhD from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and was appointed professor of Sephardic law and ethics at Bar Ilan University. He has published over 100 scholarly articles in Hebrew, English, and French, seven book-length studies in Hebrew, as well as rabbinic creativity in the modern Middle East. As usual, all our classes are recorded and available after on our website. If you have any questions, please raise your hand, write in the chat box, or wait to the end when, please God, we will have to, we'll take, we'll try to take some questions. Um, I'm also going to post the source sheet again in the chat box. And uh, with that said, thank you all for joining us today. Professor, it is an honor and privilege to have you with us. The floor is yours. Okay, good evening. Can you hear me? Yeah, can you yeah. hear me? Yes, okay. Okay, so good evening. And uh, before we uh, begin actually looking at the specific uh, sources that we'll be seeing today, um, I just want to say something about the, the, the topic. Teleological halacha comes from the notion of telos, which means like a goal. Uh, I believe it's from Greek. And um, typically, obviously, anybody that's ruling, making any psak halacha, it, it's clearly, it has a goal, right? Somebody asked a question, so you want to give them the answer. Okay, so any person who's responding to a question uh, is wanting to give the answer. That, so that's not the sense that I'm using it, because obviously people have a goal in answering any question in halacha, and there's also different types of general goals that people have when writing about halachic issues. Uh, we all know, for instance, that uh, Rambam had the goal that he wanted to enable people to have a compendium of the entire corpus of halacha, Torah, and you would not need to study anything except Torah and Mishneh Torah. And then you would have free time rather than going interminably through Talmudic sources, you would have free time to really engage in uh, contemplation, in philosophy, in understanding God and whatever. Um, Rabbi Yosef Karo, when he came to wrote the Shulchan Aruch, said there's a problem that Torateinu Asta Arbei Torot and nobody could find their way through this maze of opinions and views. And he wanted to be able to reach a solution and reach conclusion about um, what should be the case in the various halachot. And he would do this by a certain method that either he invented or he adapted, which is that he would take three great poskim and would say whatever the two out of the three agree, that's what we're going to do. And I'm not getting into the justifications and whether the justifications are consonant with each other. We just want to reach the conclusion or a different um, type of telos. Uh, for instance, Khatam Sofim had the idea that your goal was to stop the reform. Okay, and so the Hadash Asur Min HaTorah. And we're not interested in this argument, that argument, that source, that proof that the reform of all of these <coughs> newly minted want. We're not interested in that because our general goal is to preserve uh, pre modern Judaism as it was and not change anything. Okay, so also that's a goal, and um, 
it's not in that sense that I'm talking and what I'm going to be talking and discussing in specific cases is a situation like this. Typically, we think that somebody is faced with a halachic question or a halachic issue that they have to resolve. And what they we see them doing in our mind is that they're going to various books and various sources and checking out what the sources say. And once they know what the sources say, then they produce the ruling. Okay, so they answered the question, they produce a ruling according to what the books say. The situation that I'm talking about is a situation in which the rabbi or the chacham under this situation says, just a moment. I now see what follows according to the mainstream argumentation and sources of this issue. But if in fact, I will make this specific ruling the consequences in real life for the community or for the individual involved will be very bad. Okay, so we have a case in which applying what seems the obvious and clear-cut halachic solution according to the books will in real life lead in the rabbi's estimation, or is already leading in the rabbi's estimation, to very negative consequences in the life of the community of the person under consideration. And now the telos of the rabbi, the goal of the rabbi is to reach a halachic solution that is going to have positive consequences in real life. And it's going to be necessarily different from what the mainstream, obvious, and self-apparent result would be from just looking at the sources per se. Okay, so that's the the, the meaning or the, the of what I'm going to be discussing today and in the following two weeks. And to my mind, um, such a type of thinking is, or at least was, characteristic of Sephardic Psaac at its best in the past century, century and a half, 200 years, possibly also before that, but that's the time of frame of reference that I'm interested is in, in, in modern recent centuries. And um, okay, so that's the background. And that being said, I'm now wanting to move to Iraq and um, India about 150 years ago, and I will remind you, many of you may know this, of course, that um, Iraq was a far off border province of the Ottoman Empire. Okay, the Ottoman Empire began in Asia Minor, and then in the 14th and 15th centuries, conquered large parts of Asia Minor from the Byzantine Empire, and then moved to the Balkans, and then in 1453, conquered Constantinople, which is today's Istanbul. And the Ottoman Empire at that time was not a Middle Eastern Empire. However, in the year 1516-17, as a result of certain uh, battles with the Persian Empire, 
the Ottomans conquered Syria, Eretz Israel, and Egypt, and eventually Iraq. And, but Iraq was the border of the empire facing uh, hostile Persia, now Iran. And um, it was not well governed. And the Jews that were living there in those centuries um, weren't uh, licking honey. Um, and it so happened that uh, India was under the control from the 18th century of the East India Company based in Britain. And then the British Empire took over that territory and in the year 1813 determined that anyone could do business and export and import from India, not only the East India Company, it was the monopoly, they stopped the monopoly. And they began a trickle, which later grew into a large number of um, people with initiative and entrepreneurial skills from Iraq, especially Baghdad, going down the Persian Gulf through the Indian Ocean and settling in India, especially in Bombay and Delhi, and setting up actually communities of Arabic speaking originally, Iraqi Jews, some of whom became very, very wealthy. The most famous are the Sassoon and the Khaduri, Khaduri families. And these Iraqi colonies, we must say, eventually spread eastward also to other colonies of the British Empire, Ceylon, Burma, um, Hong Kong, ultimately to the, the European quarter of Shanghai. And these communities continue to regard the rabbis in Iraq to their west as the spiritual and halachic leaders to whom they turn with various questions. Now, the reality of life in India was quite different from that of Iraq because uh, in Iraq, virtually not 100%, but the very large majority of people who weren't Jewish were Muslims. And the Jews had a certain niche in Muslim society. However, in India, it wasn't the case because there were hundreds of ethnic groups, minorities, religions, and people of all colors and costumes and languages. And the uh, Jews, the Iraqi Jews, uh, many of them became very successful in business and they learned English and they became as much as they could uh, involved in the British uh, society because they didn't want in their own eyes to live um, in India as one of the lower castes. Okay, they wanted to be successful and forward-looking uh, persons. And so a lot of the questions that they faced and the issues that came up in Iraq, in India were not those that came up in Iraq in the 19th century where things were pretty much hidebound until very uh, later on. Um, so uh, what we'll now see is an interaction that took place in um, in Baghdad. It's me in well, the interaction actually took place in Baghdad between Rabbi Abdallah Somech. Rabbi Abdallah Somech was the born in 1813, and he was the great scholar of Iraqi uh, Jewry before 
the younger uh, um, generation of Rabbi Yosef Hayim Ben Ishchai uh, emerged, and he was a very successful businessman who decided at a certain time in his life to set up a yeshiva, a midrash for training younger scholars, and which he did. And in a sense, the further generations of scholars in Baghdad and Iraqi tradition came from the basis of this yeshiva that Rabbi Abdullah Tomech set up. And his sister moved with her husband to India, the Gabai family. And so he corresponded with them and was asked a lot of questions from India. And this manuscript of Chuvot was published from the family, the Gabai family uh, gave it for publication in 1981, and it's called Because Rabbi Abdallah uh, in the 19th century had already published a work called Zivhetzedek, most of which is commentary and deliberations about Shulchan Aruch. And at the end were appended uh, several Sheilotu Teshuvot. But this book, is entirely responsive. And um, as we just approach this responsa, I will bring in another figure who um, we'll be meeting, who is called Rabbi Eliyahu Mani. Rabbi Eliyahu Mani was born in Okay, the name of Rabbi Abdallah Somich's yeshiva is Bet Zilcha. And so, um, Eliyahu Mani was five years younger than Rabbi uh, Somich, Rabbi Abdallah Somich, and he was like a Talmid Haver, and he studied under him, but with him as a Chavruta. And in 1856, when he was not yet 40 years old, he decided to move to Eretz Israel in order to study Kabbalah in Yeshivat HaMekubalim Bet El in Jerusalem, which he did. He was a wealthy individual, and so he could allow them, himself to do that without having to rely upon funds from the community in Eretz Israel. And after two years that he lived in Jerusalem, the climate didn't suit him. So he moved to Hebron and he served the community of Hebron until his death in 1899. Sometime around the year 1880, slightly before that, Rabbi Mani went on a trip to India apparently to raise funds for the community in Hebron. On his way back, okay, there was steamer service from the port of Basra in southern Iraq, down the Persian Gulf, through the Indian Ocean to India. So apparently Rabbi Eliel Mani took a steamer to Basra, and on his way back to Eretz Yisrael, stopped by to visit in um, Baghdad, where he met and had conversations with uh, Rabbi Abdullah Somich. And the, okay, now we're going to see the text. And uh, here we go. I'm going to share the screen share. Here we are, and you should also perhaps have the text available to you. And uh, okay, so what we see here is at line number five, it says, Od Sha'alta, which means Od Sha'alta because around the year 1880, uh, Mr. Gabai from India sent him a set of questions 
one of them relating to an issue that came up when uh, Rabbi Eliyahu Mani was visiting in Mumbai. Od shalta sheharav haham Rabbi Eliyahu Mani natre rahmana ufrakei that Rabbi Eliyahu Mani may God preserve and protect him. Kishehaya be Bombay, he tiro tsaave achnasa liyadeg goy. Okay, we're talking about Shabbat. On Shabbat, as you know, you're not supposed to move uh, items from Rashut Hayachid to Rashut Harabim. And uh, um, if you do so, it's a severe transgression against the rules of Shabbat. Now, according, there's a classic dispute between major mainstream Sephardic sources and other sources which are more adopted by Ashkenazim. What does it take for an area, a public area to be declared Reshut Harabim, right? So according to both traditions, first of all, the it has to be a public area that's broader than 16 Amma, which is about eight meters. Virtually any street we have today in any place is fits the bill of being Rishut Harabim from this perspective. But according to a tradition which is adopted by many Ashkenazim, there's an additional condition, which is that it, this has to be a thoroughfare or a place through which 600,000 persons, the number of people that came out of Egypt, pass through there usually every day, then this is called Harabim, Rashut Harabim. However, if the uh, the streets are wide, but not so many people pass through there. This is technically not Reshut Arabim de Oraita. However, the rabbis said, okay, just a minute. This area we are going to define, it's a public space, it's broad. So albeit it doesn't have 600,000 people going through it, right? So it's called Carmelit or what we'll call for the purpose of discussion, Reshut Arabim, it's a public area, Derabanan, which is a different status. Now, if the area is really, truly Reshut Arabim, Deoraita, you can't make an Eruv, nothing can prevent you from incurring a major infraction of the Shabbat rules if you take anything from Reshut Ayachid into that area, or vice versa, or you walk carrying an object within this Rashut Arabim de Oraita for more than two meters, Arba Amot. However, if it's only Rashut Arabim de Rabbanan, then there's different ways halachically of making this into really an extension of Reshut HaYachid, which is what is done today in many communities by Eruv. Okay. However, according to mainstream Sephardic Kalaha, you can't make an Eruv on Shabbat once the streets are wider than eight Amot. Okay, that's the, the pure case. Okay, if the area is doesn't have any room, but it's Reshut Arabim Derabanan, you can, given the case that it's Derabanan, get around. You yourself can't carry there because there's no room, but you can ask a Gentile worker, servant, friend to carry things for you. That's okay, like Goisha Shabbat. Meaning he determined that the public area in Bombay is not Reshut Arabim de Oraita. 
בעוד התיר לשב בפלקי על ידי גוי. We'll see what is Palki. Palki is a kind of conveyance. Um, and uh, it's known in English. Palki is the Indian word. In English is known as a palanquin. Now I'm going to show you one in a moment. Um, stop share. And now I'm going to share a different screen. And here you are. Okay, so you see this is a... Uh, an article, an online article about a litter, a class of wheelless vehicles of human power transport for the transport of people. Now, this existed in many societies. For instance, we see here one from Japan, from China, from Turkey in 1893, where they called it Tahtirivan, some which discussed that and a palanquin. And this type of conveyance was used for high-ranking individuals who could afford to have a group of very strong men carry them uh, through a public area. Here we see a lady being carried by her slaves in Sao Paulo, Brazil in 1860. Okay, and in antiquity, this conveyance was used for the ruler and also for divinities. Now, here's an interesting comment. The instructions for how to construct the Ark of Covenant, Aron Habrit, right, which is carried through the desert, resembles a litter. Okay. Now, in the Indian, Asian Indian subcomp, a palanquin is a covered litter for one passenger. The word is derived from Sanskrit. In Hindi and Bengali, Palki. And the people that used it were people of high rank and wealth. So Rabbi Eliyahu Mani, I'm going back now to the uh, text. Rabbi Eliyahu Mani allowed Jews, Iraqi Jews in India on Shabbat to be conveyed from their homes anywhere they wanted in the city. But they used it apparently, especially to go to Beit Knesset and back, but perhaps also to have lunch with their friends. And obviously, this is once again could be done only if you rule that the public domain in Bombay is not Rashut Arabim the Oraita, but only the Rabbanan. So Yaumani and Shayaba Bombay, Tiro Tzavach Nasali Dego, but the Tiro Shebe Palki Alide Goy. באומרו, דהדרכים שלנו, שרוחבם 16 אמה, נחשבים כרמלי, כרמלי דרשות הרבים, דרבנן. And, uh, Mr. Gabay, from India, studied Halakha well, and he knew that according to mainstream Sephardic Halakha, this was not the case. The public area in Bombay is Rashut Arabim Doraita. So he asked Abdullah Somich, how could it be that Eliyahu Mani ruled for the Jews of Bombay in direct opposition to Sephardic tradition? So Eliyahu Mani says, Dalekha Shani Sikha. Abdallah, Rabbi Abdallah Sumich says, Ani shalti otu al zeh, I asked, Ve'amar sheken ha'emet shehu itir kol zeh. Uv'she'elatcha, you, my nephew, Mr. Gabay, shu'el shadinu kach olav. So there's two questions here. What is the halachic ruling? And B, how is it that Rabbi Eliyahu Mani ruled against that. So Rabbi uh, uh, Somech is going to answer those two things and he says, Teshuvah. Mi techila nikhtov lecha ikar hadin v'chakach nasbir lecha ma shekatav chacham rabbi Eliyahu Mani. In other words, first I'll tell you what the standard proper halachic answer is 
And then I'll explain to you what Rabbi Eliyahu Mani did. And he responded, the crux of the issue is Rabbi Karo in the Shulchan Aruch says, Derachim Shem Rechavim Yudvav 16 Amma Afagav Dein Bokim Bayem Shishim Rubo Bechoriom Yeshlem Din Reshut Arabi. It's enough for the public areas to be broader than 16 Amma, 8 meters, and you don't need for 600,000 people to be going there every day. Already these areas have the status of Rashut Arabi, the Oraita, you can't do anything. That's the main position that he cited. With the Ashni, Rabbi Yosef Karo said, that such areas are not considered public domain. And this second opinion, some say, in other words, there's a rule of when you read the Shulchan Aruch who brings more than one opinion, how would you know which of those opinions he holds? And the answer is, if he brings one opinion as a general opinion, and then he says, and some say otherwise, he's just bringing that, that you should know that there's a different view, but that's not what he, Rabbi Yosef Karo, holds. Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, the greatest Sephardic rabbi of the 18th century, in his commentary on Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai ruled that that's the position of Rabbi Yosef Karo. Okay, so there's a whole group of mainstream great rabbis who said that according to Shulchan Aruch, once a public area is wider than 16, Ama, it's Reshut HaRabim Deoraita. Begam Arab Tosefet Shabbat, a great Ashkenazic rabbi, ruled thus. Now it's true that there's various views between the Achronim, Al-Kolpanim, nevertheless, we have to take into account the opinion of these three great rabbis, that they are very famous and well-known, and therefore, what is really the position of the Shulchan Aruch at any public area that's wider than 16 Amaz, Rashut Arabim Deoraita, and any conveying of anything or carrying of anything in that area is isur the oraita and you can't ask a goy to do it for you and you can't circumvent that it's an absolute the atanichtov lecha now says rabbi abdallah somich to his nephew mr gabai now you know what the classic mainstream Basic central view of, of Yosef Karo and the Fardic Alachic tradition is. Now he says, I'm going to sum up for you the discussion that I had on this topic with my friend, my close friend, Rabbi Mani. Okay, Rabbi Mani came to Baghdad on his way back from India to Eretz Israel, and he and Somich are sitting together, and here's the gist of the conversation. First, says Rabbi Somich, we asked him, is it true what I heard about 
you, my honorable rabbi, in other words, he's, he's speaking very highly of Rabbi Mani, who's several years his junior. Shehetarta hapalki alidego, you allowed Jews to be conveyed by Gentiles in the public areas in this palanquin uh, chair. Of course, we're talking about well-to-do individuals. And you also allowed Jews to ask their Gentile servants to carry for them in Rashut Arabim at their direction uh, objects going to Beit Knesset. Maybe you want to take the Talit. Maybe you're going later to visit friends for lunch. You want to bring a bottle of wine, cake, whatever. We'll see what other things they also brought. And is it true? He says, first of all, could be that it's rumor and Rabbi Yaubani said, no, I told that they could do that. No. They shiva Rav Mani. Who I met, it's true. I'm not going to deny it. I permitted the people of Bombay, meaning the Jews of Bombay, to do these things. Yeah, and because Harav Chacham Rabbi Moshe Pardo, Natre Rahmanofate, the Rabbi Moshe Pardo, Shehayadayan Birushalayim Chacham Rabbi Abraham Ashkenazi. Okay, now who are these people? You can see at the bottom here. Okay, so. Rabbi Pardo was born in Jerusalem in 1810, was a don in Jerusalem. In 1871, having returned from an assignment in North Africa, he was appointed rabbi of Alexandria in Egypt, a post he filled till his death in 1888, and he has a whole series of books that he wrote. But before he moved to Alexandria, while still in Jerusalem, he served as a tayan on the Court of Rabbi Avraham Ashkenaz. He was born in Turkey and studied in Jerusalem. And finally, he was appointed as Lishon Etzion, chief rabbi of Jerusalem. Okay, so Rabbi Ediel Mani says, you know, uh, when I made this ruling for the people in Bombay, I was following the ruling of Rabbi Moshe Pardo, who was a Dayan under. Abraham Ashkenazi, ועכשיו הוא רב באלכסנדריה, וכתב עזב סקרו, רבי פרדו, wrote a lengthy response and permitted the Jews in Alexandria to travel about on Shabbat in a palki, והתיר הוצאה והכנסה על ידי גוי, וכתב, who? רבי פרדו, Justified this. The cities of Europe. Okay, the cities of Europe follow, of course, Ashkenazic ruling. Because they in Frankia and Europe believe, they follow the second opinion that Rabbi Karo wrote. The streets through which 60 people don't pass every day. I'm not sure if this is Eliyahu's money, I think, but it's Rabbi Pando's claim. If Shan Loman Sevarat Maran Gam Ken If you read the text in a certain way, you might be able to hold that Rabbi Yosef Karo himself, Maran, also agrees with this second opinion. That as long as there's not 600,000 people every day, it's not Lashut Arabim Doraita. 
Umishum Hachi, because of this, Hetira Rav Hanizkao, Rabbi Pardo, permitted Shne Elu Shne Advarim, Bekatav Pesak Aroch Al Zevid, Pisoto Besifo. So, as Rabbi Mani somewhat this, uh, disingenuous, I mean, he says, I'm, well, I ruled, you know, I just ruled here for the people of Bombay according to what Rabbi Pando ruled for the Jews in Alexandria, who also Sephardic after all. Chazanti, Rabbi Somer says, He's following to explicate the conversation. I responded to Rabbi Mani. We know you. You, Rabbi Mani. You don't make decisions lightly. We're talking here about a major issue of Shabbat. Okay. Because if the area in Bombay, the public areas are Shutarabim de Oraita, this is Isur Sekila. It's like a major, major Shabbat transgression. How could you just say we're following this minority opinion, certainly among this Faradim? Who, making a lachic decision, would not be concerned with the view of those three great rabbis, who wrote, How could you follow, listen, the Divrea Rav Pardo, on the one side, and on the other side, Legabelu Ageonim, Meneget Morenu, Verabenu Chidan, Hain Yosef David Azulai, Shasaret Anesia, Beshabat, Bepalki, Bepirus. Rabbi Azulai was asked about this conveyance. And he ruled. Great Rabbi Chida ruled explicitly that you're not allowed to use that conveyance on Shabbat because it's Rashut Arabim Doraita. So how could you, Rabbi Mani, rule the opposite for the people in Bombay? And now, see the answer. Beshiva Rav Mani. Sheshuva Adoni Omerli. You're telling me this again? You think I don't know that? I never studied Halakha. I don't know that the mainstream majority of any of the great Sephardic rabbis is that the public area in Bombay and elsewhere, is Rashut Arabim Doraita, although there's, uh, uh, without any concern for how many people pass every day. Now listen to what I have to say, and you will acknowledge that my ruling was correct. I saw the people of Bombay, who? The Jews. In Hebrew, in English, French, parasol. The Jews of Bombay won't step outside in the sun without a parasol. You can't walk outside there in the hot sun in Bombay even for a minute if you don't have a parasol. And they're carrying the parasol on Shabbat. Not once. Every four amot that they take it, another few steps, another few steps, that's what they actually do. 
now I'll stop here and I will reveal to you something which you may know that in Baghdad in the summer, it's very, very, very hot, no less hot than Bombay. Not one Jew in Baghdad would think that they couldn't step outside on a weekday and Korshikin on Shabbat. No one of them think that they need a parasol. It's hot. What could you do? You put the over your head and you go, your cloth, hood over your head, you go outside. The same Jews, when they now are living in Bombay, no, they can't do that. They need a parasol. They put in their pocket a box of tobacco. Now, just a minute. Were they smoking on Shabbat? No. This is snuff. Okay. They have silver snuff box, which they put in their pocket. They come to Bet Knesset. You may have attended such, but they Knesset. And at certain crucial times, or when it's especially boring, when somebody wants to make a friendly gesture to their friend, they bring out the snuff box, they open it, take a pinch. That's what all the Jews in Bombay do. And also they have in the pocket of their suit, mitpachat, a handkerchief. Why do they have a handkerchief? Do you think anybody in Baghdad has in their pocket a handkerchief? All right, now I'm going to share a different screen with you. Okay, here's a picture of the Sassoon family in 1850 in Baghdad. Okay, this is the patriarch of the family that came originally from Iraq. David Sassoon. Here are his two older sons. And here is his youngest son. In a couple of years, later than 1850, also these sons are going to be wearing this same kind of clothes. Why? Because in Baghdad, this is how all of the notable and well-attired people dress. But in Baghdad, who dresses, in Bombay, who dresses like this? The British, the Europeans. And as time goes by, the Jews who came from Iraq want very much to acculturate to the upper class of British India who are British. So they wear these clothes. When they wear these clothes, they have a handkerchief in their breast pocket. They have a snuff box. They have a parasol. Of course. Okay. The natives in India, many of them don't need parasols. But the British, Europeans, we're not used to this insufferable sun. They have to have parasols and that shows that they are very upper class and important persons. So getting back to the conversation. So the Jews have all carry parasols. They all have snuff boxes. They all have handkerchiefs in their suits. If we maintain that the public streets of Bombay are as mainstream classics for the Kalaha would have it, Overin Yehudei Bombay Bayadain actively Al Isur Sekila. 
And here is the case, right? Here is the case. Says Elio Money. If I am going to rule according to mainstream for these people, what am I actually saying? All of them are terrible desecrators of the Shabbat. Every Shabbat, many times over. Now, what's the likelihood that if I tell them about this, suddenly they'll stop wearing these clothes. They'll stop behaving ultimately like Europeans. Okay, implicitly, Rabbi Mani says, the likelihood is very, very small. Maybe some will be convinced, but most of the Jews in Bombay will continue to do what they're doing until now. Even if I tell them that it's Rashut Arabim de Oraita. Therefore, I relied on Rabbi Pardo. And according to the custom, meaning the halachic custom of Europe, once I ruled that it's not Rashut Arabim Doraita, but only the Rabbanan, I can enable them what we call workarounds, right? They could go in a palki. They don't have to carry themselves because their servants could do that for them. The because if we rule that these public areas in Bombay are not Rashut Arabim Doraita, but only the Rabbanan, we could do these workarounds. Um, so what do we see here? We see that this is a classic case of teleological decision-making. Rabbi Yao Mani comes to India. He sees what's actually going on. He realizes the social situation and the issue of the identification of the Iraqi Jews there with the upper stratum of British society. And he realizes that that's where they are and they're not going to change. And applying the classic halachic position of mainstream which he acknowledges what it is, is going to lead to very, very negative consequences for these people themselves and for a host of other things. How are they now going to perceive themselves? Are they following tradition or are they rebelling against tradition? How do they see that tradition can or cannot accommodate them where they are? And while we're at it, this raises an interesting question, and uh, I'll pose this question, and then perhaps if anybody would like to ask or make responses. Um, the question is, well, really, really, what are the streets of Bombay? Are they really Rashut Arabin de Oraita, or are they only Rashut Arabin de Rabanan, Carmeli? Okay, and I'll end here. And if there's any questions, uh, uh, I'll take them. And uh, if not, I'll wrap things up. Thank you so much, Professor. That was fascinating. Um, anyone, does anyone have any questions? I think I want to ask the Professor to clarify his question on us. So <clears throat> we are left thinking that there's a dispute about whether they are. The Rabbanon or the Kamali, excuse me, Rishut Rabin, the Rabbanon or the writer, between the opinions that the Maran follows as the Stam and the opinions he follows the Yeshomran. Just a minute, who's asking this? 
it, sorry, my name is Robert Sassoon, and I hasten to add, I'm of no relation to the Sassoons you mentioned earlier. So I'm not sure I understand your question to us. Professor, you're still on mute. Okay, I'll put it in a different way. Okay, and in a certain sense, I'll offer the suggestion. Okay, the suggestion is that the streets of Bombay are what Rabbi Liao Mani is going to rule. If he rules, or if someone in that situation rules, that it's Oshuta Rabim de Oraita, consequences follow. But the same reality can be viewed under the perspective of Are Frankia, European tradition, and as Rav Pardo applied this also to Alexandria, where once again, we have a community of Jews of Sephardic origin who were uh, significantly Europeanized because Alexandria was a port city in Egypt uh, and uh, had great interaction with Europe and European Jewry. And Rav Mani is saying that's the proper ruling under these conditions that should be applied to the situation in Bombay. And it's my responsibility as a rabbi, and he's saying to Rabbi Somich, and you will certainly understand this, not to go according to mainstream halachic Sephardic tradition in this area, because that will have very bad consequences for the Jews of Bombay, rather to follow uh, this position which is very much on the periphery of Sephardic rabbinic uh, views and thereby enable the people of Bambay to have halachic workarounds that will enable them on Shabbat not to carry themselves objects, but the servants will do it, and so on. Yes. Uh, does Chacham Somech uh, say whether he accepted Chacham Mani's opinion or does he just uh, record it? You're on mute, uh, Professor. You're, you're still on mute. Yep. Yeah, you're on yes, mute. I'm yep. not sure that I got the question, and uh, if somebody could repeat that, please, because the, the acoustics weren't very good. Uh, um, I'm wondering if Chacham Somech only records Chacham Mali's opinion, or whether he states whether he agreed with him or not. Um, well, in this uh, Teshuvah, he only recorded Rabbi Mani's uh, decision and justification and wanted to clarify for his nephew, Mr. Gabai, in India that what was the rationale of Rabbi Mani for making that decision for the Jews in Bombay. And we also can understand that implicitly that decision made on the site by Rabbi Mani, who was there, who saw the reality, who took these issues into consideration, is something that at least as an option, uh, Rabbi Somech was able to concede that this is a viable 
position. Now, he himself wasn't there, but he's willing to concede that this is a viable position um, uh, uh, that, that could be held uh, uh, by, uh, by the uh, people or by rabbis who are ruling for the people in Bombay. I think I think it's interesting that there's there's one level of where you where a chacham can say this is the halakha this is what I think the halakha is without consideration. There's a one, the next level, which is providing people access to a different position, but not actually holding it by yourself. And then there's a third state of actually innovating a new position to allow what they're doing. So that's this is like a middle stage where it's still not innovating anything new. Well, is vis-a-vis the Iraqi Jewish tradition, he is innovating not to follow in the reality of Bombay, the classic position that everybody in Iraq held and that other Rabbi Ben Benisti in great Sephardic rabbis held that it's enough if the certain streets are wider than X and 60 Amma. And what he's innovating is that we, under certain circumstances, should follow what is for us not the position of Rabbi Yosef Karo because that's the best thing for the community in the reality that they are living and we are not uh, in a position, and I'll, I'll make a certain general point, which we'll see also in other, in, in our further sources, that the idea that people have in their mind frequently is, right? There's us, we're the Jews, and there's halakha, and we're supposed to follow halakha, right? So if there's a certain situation and we come to the rabbi, we come to the books and we say, well, what's halakha? And we see what halakha is. Well, now what should we be doing? We should be flexible and switch our position to become overlapping with the position of halakha. So the halakha is like the constant, immovable, eternal source. And we are flexible and we can shift and may modify our behavior so as to fit in with halakha. But what Rabbi Mani is pointing out is that in many cases, or at least many more cases than perhaps we would like to think, that's not really the case for most Jews. Most Jews are not going to drastically moderate their behavior in order to fit in with halakha as it's in many mainstream sources. And now what the posek, the rabbi, the responsible person has to say is, okay, given that fact that most Jews are not going to modify their behavior, at least to the extent that would follow the halachic ideal, do I want to leave it in that and say, okay, what can we do? 80% of the Jews aren't following halakha. Good luck to them. It's not my responsibility. I told them. I taught them. They know what they should be doing. They're not doing it. And not my problem. Or perhaps, say, just a minute. If that being the case, maybe we should try to find a way in which 80% of the Jewish people are within the framework of a, a broader framework of halakha than the mainstream halakhic ideal. 
And if we could do that, we have now created a situation in which many more people could feel comfortable that what they're doing fits within, somewhere within, the broader outlines of a halachic Jewish mode of behavior. And now they feel inside rather than outside, accepted rather than rejected. And do I, as a rabbi, have the responsibility to try and reach that to the best of the extent that I am able? Now, obviously, uh, by money, felt that it was his responsibility, despite knowing absolutely well, as Absomich knew, and he knew, and the Chida knew, and they all knew what is the mainstream Sephardic position on this. He says, but nevertheless, it's my responsibility to try to fit them in. And the way that I'm going to be able to do that is if I say, well, yes, we have an option. It's not mainstream. It's not followed by classics for the Kalacha. But it exists within Alacha, and that position will enable you, the Jews of Bombay, not to go on carrying the parasol yourself, but Okay, India was a class society, the Jews were well-to-do. So they anyway had many servants. So tell Mrs. Gobai to have her Indian maid go with her in the streets of Bombay with the parasol on Shabbat. And so on. Wow, thank you so much. Um, I think we are going to call it a night. Uh, thank you so much for coming, Professor. Thank you so much. And uh, we're looking forward for the next two installments. Uh, stay, uh, stay, in stay in touch, everyone, and hope to see you in our next installments. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye. 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 Good night.